Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Our scripture passage this morning is going to be from the book of James. Uh, as we continue our sermon series through this book, we're uh, looking at James chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 9 through 12. Just a few verses this morning. And as we look at these verses, I want to draw a couple things uh, to your minds, even as we begin to look at them. Um, the good or bad news, depending how you feel about this this morning, is that we're going to talk about money, because God's Word talks about money. Uh, James goes very directly to consider how do we live a wise life? And as we saw in the previous sermons in James, that's a theme throughout James, that we need to be wise people. A wise life is one that is submitted to Jesus that follows him. And so James is going to go to various places, including our finances, to talk about how we can be, be wise. Uh, how can we be wise when we don't have much at all? How can we be wise when we have great riches? So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? And I hope as we read these words and as we look at them together, we see a deeply hopeful picture. James doesn't come to shame us. He comes to encourage us to learn, to lean fully and completely on the hope of the gospel. So here are these words from James chapter 1, verse 9 through 12. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you allow us to come to this passage with a great deal of humility, to, to submit our lives to your truth? Would we find hope in the gospel? Would, would we find um, conviction for sin? Would you meet that conviction with your grace? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If somebody comes to you and says, I have a problem. Uh, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a, a child or a friend. Uh, and sometimes when, when you, you know the person well and somebody comes and asks you that question, I have a problem, or I'm thinking about this, you might be able to tell from the tone of their voice, um, from their expression on your face, and you, you're starting to do a, a mental calculation. How much is this going to cost me? How much is this problem going to cost me to resolve? Uh, maybe, maybe you know that expression, maybe you don't in your relationships, but I think all of us know that sometimes we see a problem and we say, how do I fix this problem? How do I just navigate the financial aspects to make this problem go away? How big a check can I write so this problem isn't around anymore? James this morning in this passage asks us to do something very intentional, though, in our financial life. We all think about money. I'm not going to ask you the last time you thought about money, but it probably wasn't that long ago. Um, we all have thoughts about money, things that we hope to purchase, fears around money, that maybe our money will, will not last, or maybe it won't be enough. Our finances can dominate our thoughts. And so it's not surprising that James, out of the gate, very quickly jumps in and says, our money is important for our financial, our, our financial but not just our financial, our spiritual well-being. His, his point this morning for us is that our economic situation actually has a spiritual impact on us, and he wants us to be aware of that, that our economic situation impacts our spiritual condition. Whether we have very little money or whether we have a great deal of money, our finances actually will impact our situation. And so what, what he's saying is the pressures and difficulties of having little money or much money will press in on us and form us and shape us in a certain way. 
And so if we're going to be wise, if we're going to try to follow the path of Jesus, which James is calling us towards, then we need to consider how do we live wisely with much or with little. And so he begins right here in verse 9, and he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, Maybe you're familiar with James, maybe you've heard that dozens of times. But if you're hearing that for the first time, or if you slow down a little bit and, and read it, it's, it's somewhat of a riddle to sort of parse out this morning. Who is the lowly brother? First of all, lowly is compared with riches, and so lowly really means poor, somebody who doesn't have a lot of financial resources. And so if we understand that, then we see that he's saying this, this poor person is supposed to glory in his exaltation, and the rich person is supposed to glory in his, or boast in his humiliation. And, and you might say, how in the world can that be the case? How could we actually live that way? How is this even possible? And should we even be boasting to begin with? Isn't boasting a problem? In this context, what the writer of James is doing, the brother of Jesus, is reminding us of this really central core thing, the gospel. Now, if you read through the book of James, you often know that the gospel or Jesus isn't always on the sort of the front of what James is saying. Sometimes it seems that you have to dig a little bit to see where James is going with the gospel. But to make any sense of what is being said here, to unravel this riddle, we need to see that the gospel is right at the core of what James is saying. What he is saying is that whether you are poor or whether you are rich, the gospel is where you find your boast and your worth in. That's the only way this riddle makes sense. This is the only way this, these first verses make sense because, he's saying, because he is saying the one who is lowly, the brother, the believer, the one who is part of God's family, can boast in his exaltation. The only exaltation this poor brother has, this lowly brother, is the fact that he is a sinner saved by grace. And what, he, what James is reminding him is he's saying, in this moment of, of poverty, in this moment of being low and dejected socially and financially, he, this brother, this believer, has great worth because the gospel is true. He's saying, because the gospel is true, this person can rejoice and say, I have great standing, I have great worth, I have treasures beyond measure in heaven. And that's behind all of this. The gospel is often the, the very implicit foundation of all that James says. Without the gospel, nothing in this passage makes sense. But because the gospel is behind everything he says, we begin to see that there's actually a different way that we can live. This brother can glory in his exaltation. Now, it's this exaltation. He just says, all right, life's going to be really hard for this poor person now. Someday in heaven, everything will be good. That's part of what he's saying. But even now, if we read further into James, in James 2, verse 5, we see this language of those who are poor being heirs and rich in faith. Rich in faith. What James is reminding the poor person is he's saying, your spiritual condition is an opportunity to begin to understand how much you really need the gospel. That your very posture reminds you daily that you are somebody who is in, in need. Not having much reminds you of the fact that you have great worth and great glory in the gospel and in the kingdom of God. Now, think about this. That, maybe you've heard that before, but we, we also have to realize that what everything James is saying here is deeply counterintuitive to how we live. How you've been raised, how you've lived, how you've worked your, your lives, much of what is, is in our experience is very foreign to what is said here in the book of James when it comes to our economics. Maybe a small example of this, traveling to a different country. I remember traveling to, to Thailand once and, and sort of being in a remote area and buying groceries in this little store. 
I was with somebody who spoke the, the language, and uh, when it came time to purchase the groceries, which weren't very many, he pulls out this massive wad of cash. Like, this is, he's got like a backpack, and he's like reaching out for rolls of bills kind of thing. And, and you, maybe you've had men on experience like that, but you know what it's like to be in another country, in another economy, and trying to navigate the currency. And you're not sure exactly how much things are worth, and what's the conversion rate, and how does all of this work, and we try to figure it out. Take that example and, and magnify it massively to how we as Christians are to navigate our spiritual lives. By becoming a Christian, by becoming a believer, you have been moved into a new economy of what is valuable, of where our true value lies, where our boast is. And so we, we should actually hear this not as an indictment, but as a great encouragement to say, see, even if you're in a position of poverty, even if you have very little resources, there is an opportunity to see great exaltation, great boasting, great joy, even in the fact that the gospel is true. And that's counterintuitive. That's difficult to do, but James is reminding us that that is the path of true wisdom. And he's sensitive to those real problems, right? I know, you know, we live in Bernie, and Bernie is, generally speaking, a well-resourced community. Many of us might not resonate with this idea of, of poverty, but, but he's describing the situation, and maybe it's you this morning, where you've experienced lengthy periods of unemployment, where there just really isn't any money coming in. Or maybe your 401k balance is, is zero. Maybe there isn't retirement savings. Maybe there is a great deal of anxiety around these financial things. Your reserves are thin or non-existent. James compassionately and lovingly speaks to that situation and says, in the midst of this, God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't forgotten you. He's not being flippant. He's not simply saying, just rejoice in Jesus and all your problems go away. But he's teaching us that our financial situation points us to the fact that the gospel is true, that we are people in need of salvation. It teaches us to avoid envy or greed in our finances. He's not telling us in this passage that if we're, we're poor, we can't work to change our situation but he is reminding us that there is, there is hope outside of our finances. Money is something that traffics in hope. But here he reminds us there is a more ultimate hope than our finances. And so we can actually boast in the gospel. We can boast in the fact that the gospel is true. And that is good news for us. But as this passage continues, James shifts gears a little bit. He looks now to those who have more resources. And what he asks us now is to learn wisdom in this new economy, this economy where things are topsy-turvy, where things are reversed? How do we learn and live a life that is wise when we have much? He says this, verse 10, and the rich should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, there's a question, who is this rich person? Is this rich person a believer or is this rich person just a generic rich person outside of the church? Um, and there, there has been some debate on that, but the language seems to indicate that this rich person is somebody in the church. This is somebody who is a brother. That's sort of how the language works. The brother who boasts is also compared to a brother who is rich that should, should boast. And so this is written to those who are within the church who are, who are rich. Um, otherwise, if you, if you read it as someone who is outside the church, this, this language is deeply ironic. He'd be basically saying to somebody, you've got nothing, so you might as well just rejoice because everything's going to go away. Everything's going to be gone, and that's all you can rejoice in. And that's not the tone that we get through the book of James. So it seems that he's addressing this pastorally and sensitively to those who are rich, 
It doesn't define rich. None of us probably want to say, we always, you know, grade ourselves on a scale and say somebody else is, is rich, but here he's directing to those who have, have resources. And so what does he say? He reminds us that these resources are very fleeting, that they go away quickly. And we just need to take a, take a brief moment, and I know nobody likes to talk about this part of Scripture, but Scripture is very direct when it talks about money isn't it? If you've read through the Gospels recently, you know that when we get to Jesus, he very quickly goes and talks about how difficult our money can be. We read the rich young man this morning, the rich young ruler, right? And you know that story, um, and it's important to know that that story is not normative. Jesus isn't commanding every rich person he sees to go and sell everything they have and give it to the poor. That's not a universal command, but what is described even later in that passage is this reality that is difficult, right, for a rich person to go into the kingdom of heaven. Then through an eye of the needle, that passage there The good news of that passage is right after that, he says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so what Jesus is telling us through passages like that is this reality that our money shapes us spiritually, that there's an impact on that. And we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't ignore that. We should understand that there is a real aspect of our finances that carries into how we view the gospel even. But what is impossible with man is possible with Jesus, and we need to just hear that, I think, directly. It's very easy to try to get around that various ways in passages of Scripture and say, well, he's, it's not normative, it's not these things, but Jesus is very direct to say our money is necessary to think through carefully in spiritual ways. And how do we do that? So look at this, this passage again with me in verse 10. He uses this, this sort of poetic description of flowers and grass that fade away. We've all seen that. A scorching heat comes, something dies, and he compares us to that. Now, what's interesting is is James talks about all of this as a trial, the trial of wealth. And I think most of us, if we have to choose a trial between the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth, we're going to pick the you know, we're going to pick the wealth. We're going to say, sign me up for that one. I'll take the the trial, James. It's going to be good. And I don't think that's inherently wrong to think that way. But just that's our bent, right? We're going to take that one. But then that's also why James leans in a little bit more in length on this situation of the rich, reminding them how fleeting our possessions are. Verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Flowers falls and its beauty perishes. And then he adds this, so also will the rich fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And that language of pursuits is not just sort of going about his day, but even as he's pursuing more wealth, he fades away. Even as he's trying to accumulate more resources, he fades away. And so we need to hear that directly this morning, that that our humiliation is where we should find our boast. Now, what is our humiliation. What, what James is saying, remember the gospel is in the background. The rich person should say, my, my boast is not in this money. My boast is in the fact that I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. Just like the rich and the poor, together both of these find their ultimate value and worth in seeing that the gospel is, is what is ultimately true. One verse that brings this very sharply into focus comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation 3, verse 17. It's the church to Laodicea. Remember, in that early part of the book of Revelation, there is this uh, list of letters to churches, right? And this is the church that is called lukewarm. And then uh, the letter gets very direct. I'm going to read just verse 17 for us. It says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The good news is right after that, in that verse, even as those are hard words to hear, he asks this group of people, this church, to come and buy from Christ, to come and get the righteousness of Christ, to come and get the robes of righteousness. And so what, he's, what, what Revelation is saying and what James is saying here is that sometimes our money gets in the way of seeing the fact that we actually need Jesus. It just gets in the way. And, and, and think of it this way. Many of us can live months weeks without really sensing a tangible need. Because if we need something, we can buy it. If we get sick, we can find the best doctor. If we, you know, we could go down that list. And that's a wonderful, blessed reality that many of us get to enjoy. But there's something spiritually dangerous in that. Because so often when we have a need, we can supply it. And we forget that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. As James will remind us later in the book of James, there is this beautiful reminder that everything we have comes from God. And that's what James is trying to remind us here, to say, don't, don't follow this path that says accumulating all my resources will somehow give me security and safety, because it won't. Our wealth is, our wealth is fleeting. It will quickly go away. Think of it this way. This is what Galatians 6.14 says. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what James is trying to get us to remember, that we should boast in the gospel of Jesus and the cross, and that alone, anything else is, is transitory and fleeting. The good news of this passage is we see that in God's economy, all of us are equally humble and low at the foot of the cross. That's really, in a nutshell, what he's trying to say. All of us are equally low at the foot of the cross. So how do we live this way? All of this is true, but let's think together. How do we live this way? Um, I saw an interview recently by uh, Taylor Swift. Do we all know who Taylor Swift is? She's uh, becoming popular enough. I read recently that her net worth recently surpassed $1.1 billion. She's in her 30s. So that's stratospheric wealth. She's, she's very wealthy. So in this interview that I saw of her, um, and didn't go digging for this, I just saw it, I'm just, you know, laying that out there. Um, what she said is she was, ask, she was being, talking about her moral code, what made something right or wrong. And this is how she answered this question. She says to the effect that my whole moral code is being thought of as being good. Being thought of as being good. Now, as Christians, we can, you know, get it right in there and say, no, God is our moral code and all of those things, and that's right and good, and we should do that. But I think many of us, when we, when we move into the, the realm of finances, start to think, as long as people think I'm good, then I've submitted my life to Christ in this area. As long as people see me as generous, as long as people see me as a good steward, as long as people see me as being wise, then I am in a good position. My encouragement to all of us this morning is to, just to think clearly and scripturally about our finances and to say, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks. It doesn't matter if somebody else thinks I'm generous or not. It matters, have I submitted my life to the reality that is described in God's word, that our lives would align with that? Have I considered how my finances are, are, are shaping me spiritually? Maybe it's because I don't have enough and I'm constantly asking God, are you going to provide? And, and I'm sort of anxious and angry with God? Or on the other side, am I so insulated from my need that I never actually consider the fact that everything is a gift from God? Maybe I pray and thank God for my food, but it's perfunctory. It's not a deep heart posture that says all of this is from God. 
There's so much in our culture that we need to sort of step back from in order to see clearly how God's word describes our finances. We need to use his incisive scale from the book of James to see what he is, he is telling us. And so maybe just a few, a few lessons we can learn from this particular chunk of verses. One is just, again, that our wealth is fleeting. And I know we, we think about generational wealth and passing money on, but we also know that even that is just a temporary thing. Maybe you have generational wealth that lasts for 150 years, but in James's eyes, that's still very fleeting. That's still very fleeting. That doesn't amount to much in terms of eternity, and all of that will pass away. We also need to examine our fear, because when we talk about money, most of us get anxious. Not because we don't like to talk about it. That's part of it. But our, our key motivation behind money is often fear. We're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid of running out. We're afraid of somebody else squandering our money. All those fears sort of, sort of come in, and that fear comes from a place of, of some spiritual fragility. We're not strong spiritually. We're not trusting the fullness of the gospel. And so when our money is taken away, we get anxious. Understandably so, but James is reminding us to have this eternal perspective, this perspective of the hope of the gospel that brings us in. What else can we learn from this passage? Well, again, to note that there is a spiritual danger in having a lot of money. It's just sort of a, a basic scriptural thing. There's, there's a spiritual danger in having great wealth accumulated because it tempts us to say, I don't need Jesus. It tempts us to say, I don't need the gospel. And James again and again says, no, let our shared boast, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, be fully and only in Jesus. That's what this passage is, is about and asks us to ask the difficult, maybe internal questions to parse out how that all comes together. What does it mean for our giving? What does it mean for our savings? Have we saved enough? Have we not saved enough? All of those things are wise questions. Remember, James is a book of wisdom. And if we go to Proverbs, it'll talk about the fact that it is wise to sort of store up treasure to make sure that you can provide for people. That is wise. But what is also wise is to say that overaccumulation of resources can lead to a spot where we are glorying in something that is actually nothing, something that will fade away, something that will be nothing in eternity. So how do we stay the course? This is not just for a moment, but if we look at verse 12, there is this language of staying the course in God's economy. Not just in our, you know, retirement savings and our 401ks, but staying the course is a spiritual principle that we would carry forward with this. And so look at verse 12. It, it describes blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Blessed. It's a word we see throughout Scripture, right? It has this rich sense of sort of flourishing, fullness, happiness, joy, blessing, righteousness. All of those things sort of float together in this wonderful world, word blessed. This should remind us of the Beatitudes where we're called blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? It's this same mentality that we see here, this reality that we are blessed how? By remaining steadfast under trial. Remember, Having lots of money is a trial. Having little money is a trial. What happens if we are steadfast? It says this, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Now, think about testing. When was the last time you took a test? Probably a long time ago for, for some of us. We haven't taken a test. What's interesting about how we grow as Christians, it's different than how we go about learning in the school. In a school, right, a test is coming, and you learn, 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 and then you take the test. Biblically, often it's the other way around. God gives us a test, and through that test, we learn. That's the picture that we see here. This test is one that should shape us. And if we look through all of Scripture and see all the pictures of tests in Abraham and other places that they're tested, 
the purpose of a test is to reveal the character of somebody, right? When Abraham is tested by God, it is to see if his character is one of trustworthiness, whether he trusts in God. But it's not just about Abraham. Ultimately, what tests are about is to say, does this person really know that God is trustworthy? Does this person really know that God is trustworthy? That's the point of a test, and it's the point of the the test here. With little or with much, the point is, do you know that God is trustworthy in your finances, that you can give generously, that you cannot have your, your sort of hopes and fears all wrapped up in our finances because God is one who is worthy of our trust? And then there's this picture of the crown of life which is a picture of sort of the victor in a race coming there, getting his reward, and it's a crown not just for a moment, but for life. Revelation will remind us that this crown of life comes often through suffering, but it is this rich eternal blessing that is described here for those who do what? Who have remained steadfast, and then this last part of verse 12, which God has promised to those who love Him, promised to those who love Him, And I know that comes right at the end here, but that idea of love is so important for how we read this. Because what he is saying is those who love God will pursue the beauty and wonder of the gospel. Now, here's a question. Where is Jesus in all of this? Is this just, okay, we got to sort of white-knuckle it till eternity and not trust in anything other than Jesus? The beautiful backdrop to the book of James is that there is even grace for the moments that we fail. There is even grace for the moments that we fail. If we look a little forward in James, not stealing thunder from a future sermon, but we need to see this verse in James 4, verse 6, to anchor much of James, and it says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the life posture that is described here of steadfastness. It is one of, of not prideful accumulation, but of humble reliance on God. And God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The backdrop of what James has in mind here, of all this fleetingness of money, comes from the book of Isaiah. Have you remember way back in Isaiah 40 when we were in that passage, there's this beautiful picture that compares God's Word and His very uh, blessing on us as more trustworthy, more long-lasting than any of these transitory things. This is Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7. It says this, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. James, in verse 18, will remind us that this word of truth, this eternal reality, is what we are actually born from. That'll make more sense when we get in there. But what he is saying is this eternal rea- like trustworthiness of God's word, this thing that will not go away. The very words that are breathed out by God are the very things that give us life and the ability to move forward in this call to be steadfast. So the good news for us is, is there is grace even when we mess this up to come and say, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry for my pride in my finances, whether I have little or I have much. But I come to you and I trust in you alone and I trust fully the goodness of this grace, that you give grace to those who are humble. And that's the real opportunity to place our boast there and then to run the life that is before us in that, in that way. I don't know if any of you follow um, marathoning. Has anybody ever watched a full marathon, maybe on TV? Have you sat there for the full two hours and watched everything? Now, if you do, you know that there is this elusive... Um, 
sort of goal in marathoning. It's a sub-two-hour marathon. Nobody has done it yet. This year, somebody got within 35 seconds of it. New world record, two minutes and 35 seconds. Now, think about that. What a race that is. Sort of this endurance, this perfect picture of a race run by Kelvin Kiptum in Chicago this year. 35 seconds short. Now, if you're a real marathon enthusiast, you'll know that about in 2019, somebody actually ran a sub-two-hour marathon. And this is a record that doesn't count, however. This guy, Eliud Kipchongi, ran a one-hour and 59-minute marathon. But all the experts didn't count it. Why? Because he had a pace car. He had a pace car that he was following, which apparently helps. He also had a group of runners that were breaking the wind for him. And he also had people handing him water rather than him picking up the water, which is apparently a violation of marathon rules. Um, I say that all because here's this guy who, who broke the record, ran a race, one hour and 59 minutes and a few seconds. But, but think about that. All that effort, all that steadfastness, and he's not going to hold the record. He doesn't hold a record. If you look at the official records of marathons, he did not win the elusive two-hour marathon. It's a reminder to us that even with great steadfastness, if it's not according to the principles of Scripture, if it's not according to what is ultimately good and life-giving, it doesn't amount to anything but this fading away. Nobody will remember the one hour and 59-minute record because it doesn't count. But when somebody eventually does actually get that record, they will be the one who holds it because they ran according to the truth and wisdom of the race. I say that all to remind us that God is giving us a gift here. He is giving us a gift in these words to say, don't spiritually shipwreck your lives by caring about money as if it's ultimate. Whether you have a little or whether you have much, instead, love God and his gospel and place your boast solely there. Let's pray together this morning. Father, would you show us what is right and good? Lord, money is a difficult topic. Lord, our hearts and our, our hands are wrapped tightly around it. Lord, this morning, would you just pry those hands off just a little bit? By the power of your Spirit, would you show us that we can boast in something far better? Lord, whether we have little or where we have much, would we with Paul know that there is a secret in having little or much, and it is you and rejoicing in the gospel? Would we boast there this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.